Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, God works in our lives in a lot of different ways. And sometimes we experience when we experience his blessings, right? Things that we can see, wow, that's, that's a blessing from God. Uh, we experience it maybe when he shows us something out of his word that just, wow, that speaks to our soul. Uh, or promptings from his spirit as we go through life and we just get a sense about something and we, we trust him and act on it and we experience that. And, and we experience it when we come together as his people and, and fellowship and worship and pray and, and just enjoy his presence in us. Uh, it may be that we experience his working when we have those times of quietness, right? Maybe it's quietness at the beginning of the day and you're sitting with the Lord and his word or maybe it's the end of the day or some other time, maybe when you're able to steal away and do that, and we, we experience this working, and it is, it is so good, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like just positive vibes. Uh, everything is good. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's warm, fuzzy puppies, right, in our lives. Certainly, and I'm not uh, making light of it, but I mean, it's just good, okay? And there are other times, though, in our lives when things aren't like that. You know, things come into our lives all of a sudden that we weren't expecting. Sometimes things happen that, that uh, we were like, man, I never thought in the world that that could happen. Um, all sorts of things go on. And, and we find ourselves jolted out of that comfort and that feel-good experience of God's working in our lives. And, and it seems like sometimes these things happen. They, they happen, but they don't happen in isolation, these things that jolt you, you know? So it's not like you find yourself in a major financial crisis. And then, on top of this, all of a sudden you learn that you have significant health issues and a problem. So this is happening at the same time. And, and then all of a sudden you experience relationship problems and, and things, relationships that you're counting on feel like they're being torn apart and you try and figure out how to deal with that. And then on top of that, the car breaks down, right? The refrigerator quits working. Um, the septic system backs up. I have experienced that. Right? And, and you start to think, man, life is out of control. And we might think, you know, you might even ask the question, so why isn't God doing something? Because sometimes this goes on, Right? Why isn't God doing something? Let me suggest a better question that I have for you. What makes you think that God isn't? You see? And so we have some things to learn from our passage of Scripture today. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. We've been uh, doing this series, Journey to Jerusalem, as Jesus started off in the desert about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, made his way there. We've uh, been looking at what he's been teaching and what's been happening along the way. And now we get to chapter 21, where he is actually going to arrive in Jerusalem. And so let's read here. Well, before I do, let me just say that I think the closer they got to, to Jerusalem, probably the more excited the disciples got. 
And the more excited the, uh, the people who were following him got, because I think the crowds got bigger. Everywhere it went, the crowds got bigger. Everybody's excited because, you know, there is this sense that Jesus, now, excuse me, I think the disciples were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? The one who would come and be king over Israel and uh, would, you know, they would be free to have the kingdom of God. They wouldn't be occupied by a foreign government like Rome. And so they're thinking Jesus is going to do all this stuff. And I think the other people who followed him closely, they didn't necessarily weren't as convinced, but they knew that Jesus was someone special and he could be the Messiah. And so they're excited about this because if this is the case, then when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, somehow, some way, he is going to unite all of the people. The religious leaders who have been in opposition to them will surely see the truth and they will all come together and in unity drive the Romans out either by force or by some other means. And so this is what they're looking forward to. This is what they're excited about. Everything's been headed this way. So let's begin reading here now in chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, so this is actually a place where you, you come up from uh, down in the valley there from Jericho, you come up and you come up on the mountain. And this mountain, the Mount of Olives, is a little bit higher than where Jerusalem is. And so from this place, Bethphage, you can actually look down and see Jerusalem. And so it says, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, there's a village close by, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Okay, so let's just stop there. A donkey and a colt. In other words, the donkey, this is a female donkey that most likely this is her colt, her a male offspring, okay? And so this is, he says, you're going to find that there. How did he know that? Well, this is one of those times when God the Father and the Holy Spirit helped him to know those things, revealed them to him or allowed him to, to know them. So he says, um, here's what he tells them in the end of verse 2. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. You know, these are, they're small details, but they're kind of miraculous, aren't they? I mean, what if we were headed here to the church to do something really big? Okay, and we're down at Webster Square. And I tell you, listen, halfway up the hill of the church, there's a 1974 yellow Corvette. I want you to stop there and tell, in fact, I want you to go and get the keys. If anybody asks what you're doing, say, well, the Lord has need of this. And they'll say, okay, here you go. <laughs> now, this is somewhat miraculous, okay, that, that these things are coming together. And by the way, this day, this very day in history, we can go back and track it because Daniel gave a prophecy talking about 483 years from this particular event that happens until Jesus presents, until the Messiah shows up in Jerusalem. Okay? And so this is the day from almost 600 years earlier that had been prophesied. God's word is awesome like that. All right, so let's go back. He says, loose them and bring them to me. Verse 3. And if anyone says anything, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the idea is this, that Jesus is going to ride in on the colt, the young one, who has never been ridden before, one of the gospels told us. What usually happens if you get on a, like a 
donkey or horse that's never been ridden. Pretty quickly, you aren't riding him, right? But obviously, God is at work here. God is doing something special. So they'll have the donkey and then the colt, and Jesus will be riding on the colt. And this was prophesied some 550 years before this time. The Bible is full, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. So when we think about things that are still to happen, you think they will? On the basis of what we've already seen, they absolutely will, won't they? What God says is true. And if he foretells something, it will come to pass. So it says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, their outer garments. They put it on like a, sort of like a saddle in a sense. And they set him on them, not on them, the animals. He didn't ride both of them. They set him on them, the clothes. Okay, so they set him on top and he's seated there. Verse 8, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So what's up with this? Well, you know, if we have some very um, famous and important guest, sometimes you do what? You put down a, a red carpet or a special carpet, right? And this is what's happening here. They're acknowledging that Jesus is somebody really, really important here, even if they don't fully understand Verse 9, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And then they quote, uh, I think from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they say again, Hosanna in the highest. This word Hosanna comes from a word that literally just means save. Save. And so the idea is if they're crying out Hosanna to someone, they're saying save us. Or you are our salvation. You are our savior. Hosanna. And this word became used as just a, a, a word for praise and admiration. But so we see them here. What are they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. Son of David. A title connected with the Messiah. Save us. You are the Messiah. Save us. And then at the end, they just praise Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And everybody in Jerusalem who hadn't been part of this procession, what in the world's going on? And so they were all talking, and they were saying, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And like I said, many of them believed that he was the Messiah. Many of them believed maybe he was. But they all knew that he was somebody very, very special. So I want you to think, you're a disciple, one of the disciples following, or you're one of those other people who weren't one of the 12, but you believed and you're following it. How exciting is this? Do you know this is the culmination, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He has come. The Messiah is here. And he's going to unite us, and we're going to push the Romans out, and the kingdom of God is going to be set up. Things are going really, really well. And they are excited about it. And then Jesus does a very Jesus thing. Let's go on. Verse number 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, let's get a picture here. Jesus did not come, come in and say, okay, guys, come on. 
come on, we, we need to make some changes here. What did he do? He drove them out. How do you drive someone? You know, they got to think you're pretty serious. And, and he overturns their tables. You know, little Jesus, meek and mild. He is that way, but he's also this way because he is holy God. And this is the temple of God. And what they had done, it's not so much that they were, had, had sold things because people came from foreign countries and needed to buy uh, certain offerings and they needed to change their money and they needed to do that. But what happened is they had, now they got someone from a foreign country who needs a sacrifice and guess what? Man, we can charge them whatever we want. They got to have it, all right? Man, we can, we can charge an extra fee on this money exchange, I mean, all these kinds of things. And so what they had done is they'd taken a place that was supposed to be holy, devoted to God, and turned it into a place of commerce and shady commerce at that. And so Jesus is driving them out. He is the Lord of the temple. Verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Okay, now, you're one of the disciples and you're thinking, okay, we're going into Jerusalem. Jesus is, is going to be proclaimed the Messiah and he's going to unite. You know, yeah, the religious leaders, they've not been very friendly. He has to unite all of us, right? He has to unite all of us so we can push the Romans out. And then Jesus is going in and saying, wait a minute. So, all I can imagine, and it isn't the same, I know, but I can imagine, you know how political advisors follow along their candidate? And try to make sure that everything, nothing's negative, nothing's, you know, and uh, every now and then one of the candidates just does something really stupid <laughs> or says something crazy, right? I think this is somewhat the way the disciples felt. They didn't think he was wrong. They believed in that part of him, but it's like, wait a minute, not now. Can't we deal with this later, right? We got this other thing going on. And then verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. Okay, that's good. But then verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, you know, save us, you're the Messiah. They were indignant, they were angry and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And, and why did they? they said, do you understand what they're saying? They're like almost praying to you. They're saying you're the Messiah and how can you allow them to say these things about you? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Quoting from Psalm 8. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. All right. So we have things going really, really well, and now we have an incident that's like, well, wait a minute, this wasn't part of what we were thinking was gonna happen. And so what I wanna do here for the next few minutes with you is just kinda go through the rest of the week and how this is going. Their expectations and from Palm Sunday to the crucifixion. How do we get there? Well, the religious leaders shortly after this, a little bit later in the chapter, challenged Jesus' authority to disrupt the temple. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. Tell me who John the Baptist got his authority, and I'll tell you where I get my authority. And so he didn't answer them. And this confront, it was a confrontation with religious leaders 
of Israel instead of a confrontation with the Romans. And then Jesus tells parables that clearly condemn the religious leaders instead of the Romans. Uh, and he uses the parable where he uses the terms wicked men. Wicked men. And I, I, I kind of chuckle at this, but it says, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And he was. Okay? And it was not well received. So this is not going well. Rather than getting the religious leaders in line with you, you are alienating them further, Jesus. And then different sects of leadership began opposing Jesus more openly. Particularly, there were two uh, different groups of leadership. There was more than that. But the the Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection from the dead and and the spiritual world uh, beyond this life. And they were very picky about keeping the law. And then you had the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection or an afterlife, did not believe in that. They were much more political than they were religious, okay? And they did not like each other. In fact, we get to the book of Acts, we see them in an argument almost tearing Paul apart because they they don't like each other. Um, But anyway, so they begin to find opposition with him. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they failed, okay? And then the same day the Sadducees went, they failed, and then we see this, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Jesus is uniting the religious leaders, but not against the Romans, but against him. This is not going at all the way they had expected. Uh, It's getting out of control. Jesus being very politically incorrect, I don't know if that's actually the right term to use, but he begins speaking openly about the religious leaders and he describes them in some very harsh terms. He says this, the scribes and Pharisees, all their works they do to be seen by men, hypocrites, blind guides, fools, Whitewashed tombs, inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Wow, what's going to happen now? I just don't think this is at all what the disciples were expecting. Those words they would have reserved for the Romans. Even though the religious leaders they knew weren't right. And then Jesus really did it. He told everyone at the temple, which was the symbol of their relationship with God, was going to be destroyed when God judged his people. And he says, see the temple? Or surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's giving the religious leaders more and more reason to oppose him. And so, once again, if, if we were coming into Jerusalem expecting one thing, Now something very different is happening. It's like things are out of control. And then the religious leaders respond to Jesus in this way. It says, then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. How can Jesus be the Messiah if he gets killed? And even if he doesn't get killed, how can he rally the religious leaders to join him against Rome if they want him dead? And then one of his own disciples turns away. Judas sought opportunity to betray him and he reached an agreement and he brought them. 
And with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Man, everything is, is going wrong at this point, isn't it? It's all falling apart around them, all their expectations, you know, and then his closest followers run and hide. Even Peter, who some might assume was one of the closest to Jesus, he denies the Lord. And we see, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he did. So he went out and wept bitterly. Now, who would have expected this? Not what they expected. And so then Jesus is convicted by the religious leaders in some fake kind of trials, and he's taken to the Roman governor for sentencing. The scripture says, when morning came, all the chief priests, elders of the people, plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So this is like mind-blowing, has to be for the disciples and the close followers of Jesus, because here the religious leaders are now cooperating with the Romans. This is insane for them. It's out of control. And we know Jesus is tortured and put to death. It says, and when Pilate had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then they crucified him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I mean, this to them was impossible. At least they never expected it could be possible. I mean, what in the world is going on? How could this happen? From coming into Jerusalem, right? The knowledge is the Messiah and, and everybody is coming together for him to be the king and set up the kingdom and drive the Romans out and unite all of the Jewish people in that effort. So you got to wait, is it really over? As they think about it, is it really over? Well, we see here, it says, when Joseph had taken Jesus' body, Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body, he laid it in his new tomb and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed.
imagine being the disciples? Being his close followers? It's done. It's like all over. Devastated and it is dark. And you got to think as they think about, you know, three days earlier, four days earlier, man, everything was just great. It was like we talked about in the beginning when God is working our lives and everything is so awesome. In just a matter of a few days, one thing after another, after another, after another, and everything is out of control. Right? It's out of control. Um... And they got to think, maybe they ask the question, right? Why isn't God doing something? But what do we know? God was doing something. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Jesus is coming back. Three days later, he's coming back alive, victorious. Yeah, right? He has conquered sin. He's conquered death. And in hindsight, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see that all of this was happening to accomplish God's eternal plans, big plans. Uh, he providing redemption, the possibility of redemption to the, all of humanity. Right? He's, he's defeated. It's like we, we talked about today. He's, he's provided forgiveness of sins and freed us from the controlling power of sin and, and given us eternal life. And, and he's been at work in our world ever since. And, but obviously where they were, they couldn't see it. Life was pretty much out of control. And, and it's easy to understand, I think, why they felt the way they did. So let me help you with this today. Because has your life ever, if you ever felt like your life spun out of control all of a sudden? I can look around and I see something and I say, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, I know. And I think for all of us at some point in our life, life tends to get out of control. And if you haven't experienced it yet, just wait. (laughs) Right? And it can be overwhelming and and hard to figure out. And it's easy to lose sight of what's going on. So let me share a verse from the Old Testament from the book of Psalms that I think gives us some insight to what's going on so that when we find ourselves in these times when life is out of control, What's going on? And remember. So Psalm 50 verse 3 says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. And this is in the context. He's really talking about doing some purifying of his people in this psalm. All right? The purifying of their motives, maybe their actions. And and the first thing he says after this, he says, A fire shall devour before him. Okay? So when the Lord goes to work in this way, it's fiery around him. And then it continues and it says, and it shall be very tempestuous around him. So let's talk about these two things. But what we get a sense of is that when sometimes when God is working, like I said, we talked in the beginning when God is working all these awesome, fun, enjoyable things. But sometimes when God is working, it is different. And the way it makes us feel is that life is out of control. It's out of control. Okay, so let's look at these two different things that this psalm tells us. Uh, And the first one is this, a fire shall devour before him. And you think about a fire and what it does. And here's here's the reality. When 
you find yourself in life and everything's falling apart and it seems like it's out of control, there's a fire burning. But here's what's happening. You know, just as a fire burns and when you look at the landscape afterwards, it's different, isn't it? Well, when your life seems out of control and what's going on, I want you to know that when all is said and done, the landscape of your life is going to look different. There are things there that you counted in your life that you thought would always be there and would always be something you count on and it won't be there anymore. And there may be things that were sidetracking you in life that you now, you know, they're gone. Because God is working. He's working. And, and we've all seen pictures, I think, you know, of forest fires. And just a very short time after, what do you see? New life growing up. And so when your life seems out of control and it seems like, man, everything is burning up and going away, that, that yes, the landscape of your life is going to be different. But what do we know about God? He's good. His purposes are good. And it will be a good thing in our lives, even though we don't like it. And then the second part of this verse, when it says, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Okay, well, what does that mean? What is tempestuous? You know, you'd probably, anybody use that word this week? <laughs> tempestuous, okay, well, what does it mean? Well, it literally means stormy. Okay, that's the, the literal meaning. But it comes to mean in what happens in our lives uh, it's characterized by powerful emotions or behavior, big things going on, okay? And that's the, isn't that the way you feel when life spins out of control? And it's marked by upheaval inside of you and in your life. And this upheaval means a violent or sudden change of something or a disruption. And that's what happens when your life spins out of control. Everything is disrupted. This huge upheaval in you. Motions back and forth. And, and it's this probably, this idea of the tempestuousness that leads us to a place, to a question that I see people asking at this time that has the potential to really knock you down spiritually. And that's, where is God? You find yourself in the middle of this, where is God. Good news. God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. And we see multiple, go ahead and go to that if you would, Silas, please. God has not abandoned you. And we see numerous places in the scripture where it talks about this kind of thing. Right away in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, it's, it comes from this, but we don't have this part up there. But when Jesus said, and be sure of this, I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age, as long as it takes. I am with you. It's easy, I'm with you all. No, I am with you. In the middle of all this, yes, I am with you always, right? Okay? And then he, he's quoted in Hebrews chapter 13 as saying this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I think this is really significant because do you remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he has this experience of bearing the sins of the world and how, however that worked with God the Father and the holiness and Jesus cries out, remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Old Testament scripture, talking about the experience of his soul. This one who feels forsaken says to you what? I'll never let you be forsaken. I was forsaken 
for you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. He hasn't abandoned you. And then in Psalm 46, it says this, that God is our refuge and strength. And I like this, a very, what's the next word? Present help in trouble. God is present. When you're in all of that trouble and you're in deep and you're in over your head and it's out of your control and you can't figure out how to respond, you wonder if there's any hope, is anything ever going to change? God is a refuge. He'll give you strength and he is very present in your life. And you may not feel like it's true, but it is true. That's important to remember. When you find yourself feeling like it isn't true, it's still true. He has not abandoned you. And in the next couple of verses of Psalm 46 here, it says, therefore, we will not fear. Okay? That's what we're saying. Wait a minute. God hasn't abandoned me. I'm in the middle of this. It's crazy. Life is out of control. But God has not abandoned me, so I will not fear. But I'm afraid. Yeah, but I'm not going to fear. But I'm afraid. Yeah, but I'm not going to fear. i got to keep coming back. So wait, no, 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 no. I don't need to be afraid in the middle of all of this. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, we will not fear. And that's a conscious choice we have to make and remind ourselves of. Doesn't mean you won't find yourself feeling afraid, but you keep saying, no, wait a minute, here's the truth. And so when life seems out of control, four things you need to remember. Okay, and this first one is just really, it's just true and needs to soak in. You were never in control to begin with. True? We don't have a lot of control of our life. We have control of our, our responses and, and things we choose to do, but everything that's going on out there, we have no control over. And we, and we try to control that. We try to control other people and make them act differently or think differently, be differently to us because we need them to be, you know, but we don't have control over people. It doesn't work. It's kind of like, um, how many of you like roller coasters? Raise your hand high if you like it. Okay. The rest of you either don't or you're not sure, right? Um, but it's like this. You get in the roller coaster and you sit down and then they lock that thing down, click. Where are you going? <laughs> the whole way, right? It's out of your control. And we need to realize sometimes that's the way life gets. We have been clicked in and it's happening. Um, second thing. Oh, by the way, let me say, did the disciples have control of what was happening? No, the disciples, they didn't, right? They, they hoped how it was going to happen. They thought how it was going to happen. They had things they were counting on. And they didn't have control of it either, okay? We just don't have control of all those things in our life. Second thing, God is working in very big and very personal ways. Think what he was doing through this week, this Passion Week, right? He was bringing to the place where uh, the sins of all mankind have been paid for. He's coming to where man no longer has to be subject forever to death. Uh, we can enter into his presence fully. He's going to form the church and we have each All these things that the Lord was doing, big picture things. He was doing those. And the disciples didn't see it. They didn't know it. And also he was providing for them because what is happening to them? 
Man, they are going to be changed, aren't they? How are they going to be changed? We see that in Scripture. So he was doing big, big, eternal kind of things and then very personal kinds of things in their lives. He was using all of these things to get them to where he and they wanted them to be. Third thing, cooperate with God in whatever he's doing by trusting him in his word. Easier said than done. Okay? But we can do it. And the idea is when life is falling apart, we gotta, we gotta get in his word, we gotta trust him, we gotta learn, we gotta grow, and we're, we're, you know, wherever we are on that ride, we're going, so, but let's cooperate with him. Because if I, if, so anybody in here, have you gone through a, a time in life when it's really out of control and you hope you never go through it again? Okay. How would you like to just waste that? All you went through, don't learn a thing, don't make a change, waste it all so you can go through it again. <laughs> Right? No. We need to cooperate with God. The things that he shows us, the things that he teaches, the opportunities he gives to us, the opportunities he takes away from us. Whatever it is, we we need to say, yes, Lord, teach me, change me, do a work in me. Whatever you want, Lord. And so we lean into him. And then finally, know this, remember this, that what God is doing is better than anything you can imagine. I mean, the disciples were imagining an earthly kingdom with an earthly king with no Romans around. Pretty good. What was God doing? Setting up an eternal kingdom with no sin around. You know? And lots of other things we could talk about. And so the same thing in your life. Even though you can't see it from where you are, God is doing something that is way better than what you thought was going to be good. And now, this could be long-term, what we're talking about. Out of control can last a long time. It can last a day. It can last years. It doesn't matter. God is taking you somewhere better than you can imagine. I promise you. Father, we come to you today and thank you for your word. I do pray, Lord, that as we talked about the Lord's Supper and what your son did for us, and if we have anyone here today who doesn't understand how to have a relationship with you, that they, I pray, Lord, that they would seek us out and we can talk to them, help them know. We're so grateful that we can just put our faith in your son and what he did for us to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I pray, Father, as we find ourselves from time to time with life spinning out of control for a short time in small ways or a long time in huge ways, I pray, Father, that we will remember that when we feel like saying, you know, where are you in all of this, that we'll remember instead that you are in all of this. That we might honor you we might be changed and experience all that you have for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, we ran a little late, but let me see if I got any questions, okay?
Well, unless you're trying to send it right now, we don't have any questions. God bless you. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday to celebrate, okay?